And welcome back to another episode of Relatable Chapters. In this episode, we're joined by Stephen Holloway. Steve is the co-host of the Between Two Bears podcast with Seamus Martin, who is our next week's guest. The Between Two Bears has gone from strength to strength and is up there in New Zealand's top podcast rankings. I've been a long-time consumer of their content, and I was definitely fanboying a tad in here. These guys have interviewed New Zealand's top, top of the top, best of the best, in media, entertainment, sporting, and also down to local legends. I'd highly recommend going onto their page and having to scroll. There's bound to be someone that you know, uh, and it's crafted to perfection, man. It's amazing personal stories that they managed to pick out, uh, which separates them from the rest of us. But this isn't a podcast about a podcast. This is about Stephen Holloway, a father of four, a loving husband, an ex-professional footballer, an ex-professional poker player, a journalist, and a podcast host. He's had a wicked journey with a few moments in time where he has pivoted his priorities. Similar to Stephen's final quote, nothing good in life is easy. But shit, his poker stint sounds luxurious, man. He even had a maid at one point. But with all the ups, there are some downs. It's inevitable. We dabble in the learnings along the way and bring it home with a little podcast Q&A. Don't forget to click on the podcast follow button and I hope you benefit from listening to this episode. So let's get into it. Steve, cutting the intro off just like my mate. Sorry, man. Didn't know what was going on. Ah, it's, a good, it's a good tune, eh? It's a good tune, it's yeah. One of my um, DJ mates put it together for me right at the beginning. DJ Boomy, his name was. Funky. Got him on the podcast as well. Yeah. He, um, Able to make the little intro jingle as well, so that this other... I rate it. Little, little <laughs> yeah, one. Yeah, smooth. How good. Got to have connections, eh? <laughs> um, so I don't think... Oh, oh, I'll do a proper introduction beforehand, but I won't um, dabble too much into the introduction, but definitely um, a lot to talk about at the later end of the podcast, about podcasting. Okay. Um, but we'll start off with three things you go for for today. Three things I'm grateful for. Far man, put me on the spot. Um, I'm grateful for family. I've got four young kids and uh, every day it's a mixture of chaos and uncertainty and tantrums and love. Uh, but I always go to sleep thinking I'm really lucky and grateful to have what I have. Yeah, uh, yeah. I am grateful for the work I do with the podcast. I'm working towards something I'm uh, so passionate about. Uh, I feel like we're putting something really positive and good out there uh, and we're getting a lot of goodness back. Mm -hmm. And third thing I'm thankful for is my health. I've been through a few struggles with my... uh, Running was a big part of my life and I've had issues with my hips and I can't run anymore. But now I swim, so I taught myself to Mm -hmm. swim. I hated swimming, but now I've grown to love it and went for a swim this morning and, yeah, feel great. Life is good. Life is not bad, eh? So can you run now? Nah, nah. Um, I have heard recently you got help through one of your past guests, got you onto somebody specifically in making movements. That's right. Yeah, we had Dave Wood on our podcast, who's Israel Adesanya's um, breathing and stress mitigation coach, but he also had chronic hip problems, very similar to mine, and taught himself through sort of holistic programs to be able to move again. Mm. So I'm, I have been working with him, and he's put me on to another sort of hip guru. So I do these exercises every night, and I've been doing them for months. But you've got to look at the big, like it's, my hips are so fucked, 
that it needs like it's a long play like and you've got it. Uh, there's just no cartilage left. I've just got just severe something. arthritis. Yeah, I played football for 20 years and training three, four times a week. Yeah, and yeah. it's just a, a mixture of I had hip dysplasia as a kid and um, sort of bad genes and yeah. there's no cartilage left. So, yeah, it came to a moment where I, I met with a number of surgeons and doctors and they sort of said, look, there's just you just can't run anymore. Like you're going to need hip uh, surgery, but it's not quite bad enough yet. Yeah. So your options are swimming or, or biking. So yeah. what about uh, your young ones coming up? Can you run around and play in the park with them? That's what I'm motivated to get better for. Yeah, yeah. Like playing social football I thought was going to be a big part of my life, but um, I've sort of given up on that dream. But mm. I coach my my kids' teams, and I love playing footy in the back garden with them. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And I just don't want to have pain when I do that. I, want, I don't want that to feel like a struggle. So yeah. that's kind of my motivation. It's the underlying motivation because quite often people go to the gym, I want to lose weight. That's pretty surface level and then you realise that they actually want to they're, they're getting gassed when they're playing in the park with their children that they want to lose weight so they can last longer and play around and stuff like there's always underlying ish, uh, things to come through yeah like yourself there it's a str- like it's hard and I read this book um, Atomic Habits by yeah. James Clear fucking good eh? which is a game changer yeah. and it, it talks about like the one percenters like the incremental changes that you make that over time make a big difference yeah. and I always think about that when I'm doing these stretches and strengthening exercises at night it's like I'll work and I'll do podcast stuff and I'll get the kids to bed and I'll tidy up and then it'll be 9, 9.30 and I'm like fuck I don't really feel like doing yeah. this stuff but like no you just gotta you just yeah, gotta yeah, yeah. you just gotta find your motivation. And kids, yeah, playing with kids is a pretty good motivation. Um, mine this week. It is episode fifty for me. So it's a huge milestone. Oh, congrats, man. So, hey, let me just stop you. That's fucking awesome. Yeah. It's like people don't understand how hard it is to maintain a podcast and put something out yeah. there every week and to keep it going because I'm sure you've faced a number of times where you've questioned <laughs> whether it's right to keep going, yeah. but good things happen the longer you go, man. Like the yeah, you the relationships, the yeah. connections you make, uh, things start to snowball. Oh, so well done, connections. Bro. Eh? That's, yeah. So that's my first one. Is I'm grateful for my past guests, the uh, friendship that I've had with them, and also the story and journey I've gone through with them. Uh, it's pretty powerful. Um, I'm grateful for my friend Matt Moore for hooking me up with you and show. Um, that was also at a time where, like you just mentioned, you kind of up and down on the whole journey of it all. And I was in a down patch, and then you caught up with you guys. It's like, oh, fuck, yeah, I, I could keep on going, keep on going. So that's what we're doing. And, um, yeah, I'm also grateful for you and Shay's advice uh, in that coffee meeting that we had. It's just small things do compound and um, can have snowball effects. So it's been quite good. Um, love, it, love it, bro. Um, what a good bastard Matt is. Like, I met him once. We were yeah. doing this presentation for Soda Business yeah. in Hamilton. Just had a brief chat with him. But he, you told me you guys were friends from school, but you kind of had been a bit disconnected as oh, you yeah. as you get. And then he just thought off his own back with nothing for him to gain, that he just thought these two people that I want to connect that I think yeah, would have a yeah. good connection. Like, I love that, man. It's just it's selfless helping yeah. others. Like, yeah, for sure. It's cool. Definitely put me in a... Awkward position, I was like, oh, fuck off, like, yeah, yeah, right, these guys are going to have a coffee with me kind of thing, <laughs> <laughs> but nah, fucking awesome, and as I always assumed, you you and Shay are just casual blokes, normal person, people, Yeah, like, there's nothing to it, it but yet you have all these people that you've spoken to, and I'd imagine you would have the same feelings to them that I have to you right now. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's weird. Um, so, yeah, for those listening don't know the podcast journey, it started just me and Shay as a football, a grassroots football show. Yeah. And it was me and Shay, and we can talk about it later. But it's got to a place now where we have this big audience and we're kind of seen as people who are sort of influencers or, yeah. you know, like seen as, I don't know what the term is. But it's a weird dynamic and it makes me think back to when we were starting out and which is why I always say yes to anything like yeah. this and always try to help people out because people helped us out on the way. And I remember Scotty Stevenson came in and Scotty was he'd just been commentating the All Blacks uh, at the World Cup. He was like one of the biggest stars on TV. We were nobodies. And the same thing. He came and gave us like two hours of his time and just shared so much yeah. wisdom. And it's just like you, you just got to keep paying it back because – People yeah. leave the door open for you, you leave the door open for someone else. Fuck, oh, fair point. Um, so, yeah, my podcast um, audience and stuff, around 20 to 35 is where my audience is. Um, not too sure about yours. But, um, and my audience is a lot smaller. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the way I f- it started flowing through it all is uh, through key turning points of people's lives. So this is where the Relatable Chapters name came from, that... Each and every one of us go through certain chapters of our life and it can be relatable one way or another, whether or not that's learning or the actual experience itself. Like if you've got someone who's got cancer or committed suicide, that kind of thing, it can be quite relatable, but it's always the feelings of grief or loss or something that's relatable. So uh, I've asked you for four to six key turning points. Uh, We're going to rattle through them, uh, which is your scholarship to go to New Jersey for four years, um, your unsuccessful quest to become a professional footballer, Finding journalism, working with your dad at Waikato Times, becoming a professional poker player, which that one's fucking pretty crack up in my eyes, <laughs> uh, meeting your wife, and then um, your job at New Zealand Herald, and then we're just going to finish off with the um, starting a podcast. Yeah, it's my life. That's fucking huge. But um, So that's just quickly what those kind of points were, but before I get into it, um, normally when someone will talk to you like in a conversation or... You know, you're, you're meeting someone for the first time. You go, oh, like, you're like, what do you do? Who are you kind of thing? And you put a lot of labels on yourself. So say, for instance, you'll be like journalist and podcast, podcaster. So if you take away the labels that's kind of society put on each and every one of us, who is Steve? Like, who are you without the labels? I think I'm just someone who is eternally optimistic and... Um, up, like a, a good high energy person who is on a continual thirst for learning and improving and growing. Um, a lot of those chapters, like the, the life has gone in a lot of different paths, and there's been some challenges along the way. But I've been very fortunate. Like I, I've had, I've had such a good, stable upbringing. Mm-hmm. I had such a good family and such a good childhood. So. I'm incredibly privileged in the platform that was created for me, mm. but I, I like to think that I'm just the everyman who uh, is just just happy and um, just full of life. Nice. I um, did ask Shay for his point of view, but he didn't, didn't actually get back to me on that. Didn't he? Nah. Bastard. It's like you guys, how you guys get um, great inside stories. Mm. And then I gave up right at the start. I was like, nah, fuck, no one listens. 
And then talking to you guys, you're like, yeah, try it, try it. And then I had three guests in a row. I asked seven people, got one response. <laughs> really? And I was like, oh, this ain't my cup of tea. Okay. Like, it doesn't work for me. It works yeah. for you guys. But yeah. I gave it a go. I'm going to, that's no good from Shay. I'm going to hammer <laughs> about that. Poor form, Shay, if you're listening. You bastard. <laughs> well, that's a bit low. Huh? <laughs> um, so, first turning point. Scholarship to University of New Jersey. I um, was listening to oh, the podcast with the... Um, Dude that does the raw. Oh, yeah, Ryan. Ryan, yeah. Yep. It's guys are talking about the Jersey Shore and stuff. Yeah, that's <laughs> right, man. That's a throwback. Yeah. So that's where you were in New Jersey, um, four year scholarship. Um, what was that like? Because that was straight out of high school? Yeah. So why is this kind of a defining moment of your life? Um, I was good at football, soccer, um, through high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the better players in Waikato. Represented New Zealand age group teams. My dream was to be a professional footballer. So, coming towards the end of high school, it was like, well, what's the path? How do I get there? What do we mm. do? And there was a guy who lived in Hamilton who was a few years older than me, named Scotty Granville, um, another Hamilton Waikato legend. He had been over to the United States, and this was a time when Ryan Nelson had been over there, Simon Elliott. Like, it was kind of the start of Kiwis seeing a path through America. Mm. And so through talking to Scotty and having that connection, um, my parents, again, very lucky and and privileged for my parents to have done what they did, they really worked hard and fought hard to get me over there on the scholarship. So I had to do an SAT test. Uh, There was a ton of paperwork. We had to send over a a DVD of me playing football that the coach (laughs) could look at because, you know, internet was in its infancy at the time. You know, not the the levels of sophistication there are now. Uh, And they agreed to take me on a scholarship which was four years uh, in Monmouth in New Jersey. And so I was 17. I was just turning 18 when I left. Um, I played for Melville. We'd made the Chatham Cup final, which is the oldest, biggest comp- knockout competition in New Zealand mm. sport. We had this amazing team of youngsters that made the final. Like Everything was flying here. I'd won Waikato uh, Player of the Year at the Football Awards. And then that was the moment where I was like, all right, fuck it, we're going off on an adventure. So I didn't know anyone in America except for Scotty, who was only there for a few days, and then he came back to New Zealand. So as a 17-year-old, being at the airport, saying goodbye to my parents, flying across to the other side of the world where I knew no one mm. and about to embark on this four years. Looking back, like at the time, it was just exciting and I was like loving the thought of it. Um, looking back, like that was a really, really big move. Like I don't know how many people have that in them to, no. to take a big leap like that. Especially nowadays, quite often we stay at home for an f- extra few years after high school as well because rent can't really buy houses and stuff like even going away into halls it's becoming less and less i reckon these days but let alone another fucking country yeah yeah it's fucking so interesting eh? so it was cool like four years there was it like the the carrot of going to the states on a scholarship is that best case scenario you come out the other side and you are a professional footballer like that was my dream make it to the mls or get some other pro contract but worst case scenario you finish your four years and you've got a degree. Mm. And like that's what I would have done here anyway. I would yeah, have right. gone to uni and got a degree. So it's like a, a kind of a win-win. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, you've got these state-of-the-art facilities. Like this place I went to, Monmouth in New Jersey, was loaded. Like a private school near the Jersey Shore. Um, 
people there were either athletes on scholarships or super wealthy sort of New York yeah, families okay. that yeah. or New Jersey families. So like we we lived in this big mansion, like eleven house mansion, and all the soccer players were <laughs> in it, and it was like. Yeah, it was pretty rough and raw in terms of professionalism. Like, it was a party school. You yeah. know, we would be drinking two, three times a week. Isn't um, that drinking age 21? Yeah, so you'd have house parties. You know, like you see in the movies where you know, have the Just keg and the red fr- solo yeah, yeah. cups and stuff? That's how it was because <laughs> you couldn't go to the bars. So the house <laughs> parties were, were, were where it was at. So um, partially you're kind of setting sail into uncharted territories without a map kind of thing. 17-year-old going to a new country, all you see is like movies of what you were kind of going into. How fast did you actually grow up? Like, did it make you, like, really think about things and, or were you just thought it was, like, natural progression? Not not as fast as you would think. Like, looking back, uh, I was still quite immature. Um, so despite being away from home, a lot of stuff was taken care of for us. Yeah, I was going to say, like, cooking in there. So, so the way it worked is they had this big dining hall at mm. the university. So they would have, you'd just go, you'd turn up and uh, on the campus and this huge like buffet of whatever you wanted to eat, breakfast, lunch and dinner. So anytime you wanted to get a feed, oh, this sounds ideal. you'd just go to the dining hall. So like that was taken care of. All of your washing for the yeah. soccer side of things, like you trained, you gave it to the team manager, you put it in a big bin, it was clean for you the next day. So like those major things like washing and food is pretty much taken yeah. care of. And the rest of it, like the university side was pretty easy. It was like an extension of seventh form. It wasn't that hard yeah, and okay. challenging. So I sort of cruised through without trying too hard. Yeah. Um, I was still dedicated to be to, to be a professional soccer player. So I, I put a lot of my energy and time into that. But also socialising, like the Kiwi accent in America <laughs> as a teenager and you're on the soccer team went yeah, a long yeah, way. Yeah. Like it was, just, it was just good vibes. But yeah, I, I perhaps didn't grow up that fast. By the end I was, by my last year... I was mature, but the first three, looking back, was was pretty fast and loose. <laughs> so what year roughly was this? This was 2003, 2006. So, so you didn't really have social media, In its infancy, uh, we had AOL Messenger. Um, so I went over there without a cell phone. I think maybe in my second or third year I mm-hmm. got a cell phone. But Yeah, yeah. so where I'm coming from is like nowadays if I go travelling, I can meet heaps of random people, um, add them on Instagram, whatever, and then one day – Meet up with them again. Have you been able to stay in contact with any of these people? Not Matt. Not many. I don't think I talked to. Uh, there's one person I still talk to occasionally. Yeah, and that was hard. Like because to move it forward, I, I ended up doing four years, and you build these really strong, yeah. intense relationships and connections and best friends, and then I ended up moving back home. So it's kind of like a world away. You keep those relationships for a little bit, but eventually it just becomes this weird sort of time capsule of your life, yeah. which is separate from where you are. Yeah. And you're back in New Zealand, and then all of a sudden your friends have all gone and off in different directions, and you're sort of rebuilding your social network. Yeah. So it was, yeah, I did struggle with that a little bit, um, but yeah, it takes time, and eventually you get your you find your people again. So yeah, your next turning point then, unsuccessful quest to becoming a professional footballer. Was that kind of at that stage there, that end of your study there's no more future paths yeah so i i did really well in my last year and i was uh, all american i was the first from our university to 
become an All-American. Um, I was like one of the top scorers in the What's nation. What's an All-American? All-American is they, they select three teams from all of the USA mm-hmm. and they have like All-American first team, second team, third team. And it's basically the best players that all the coaches select. Mm-hmm. So I thought I was on track to get a shot at the MLS Combine and then get into the MLS yeah, team. Yeah. I thought that was going to happen, but it didn't. They, they had an international players rule where... Um, they could only have like three or four foreigners in each squad, so you're competing against you know the best players from around the yeah, world that right. were coming to the MLS. But all of this is just an excuse. I wasn't quite good enough. Yep. you know, I, I wasn't quite there. I was a good player, but I didn't have pace. And mm-hmm. as a striker without pace, you need to be incredibly technical. Okay, and, on that then, did you not just work on your pace then, day in day out? There's a limit to working on your pace. Yeah, like know? sprinters, they they sprint. For marginal increasing, yeah, is that similar? That you're just increasing amount. But say, I'd say in football, say, say a top level striker, a professional striker, might be a nine or a nine and a half out of ten in, t- in terms of speed. Yeah. I was probably like a six and a half <laughs> or a seven. <laughs> you know, so like, yeah, I could have, and and I did, and I worked on trying to increase yeah. it, but. There's that might have go. gone from seven to seven and a half. Yeah, you know, okay. I'm still, I'm still. Was there quite not a a another off. position you could go into then? A little bit, and so I went and trialed. So after I bounced back from America, I went across and trialed. Um, I did a week at Kidderminster. I did a week at Barnet. Uh, I did a week at Dagenham Redbridge, and I did some time in Australia. Essentially, yeah. trialing at these clubs, which is we had Chris Wood on our podcast mm-hmm. um, a while ago. Like it's so hard when you're trying to break into these professional environments because every person, huh, well, the other strikers in the team, you are essentially challenging them for their livelihoods. If you do well and get their spot, they're on the way out. So yeah, they don't want to make yeah. you feel comfortable. Um, and at these teams, for every one of yeah. me. So there, true. there was someone bigger, stronger, faster. Yeah. So my strength was my in- intelligence and my guile. But I was like in these training drills and stuff, and you'd have sprint drills and athleticism and jumping and stuff. Like, holy shit, man! These guys are on a different planet. <laughs> so yeah, it was quite. I realized I wasn't quite there, yeah. you know. And it took four trips to four different teams mm-hmm. and a bit of time in London and a bit of time in Australia to find that out. Mm-hmm. And then I bounced back to New Zealand and sort of realized that. Um, you know, I was going to be a good National League footballer in New Zealand, but the professional dream had, had kind of died. So then that's when you came back and you started just playing socially? Or not socially, but like a now top level? Yeah. Which isn't professional. Yeah, I had already been playing National League in between that as a bit of a, a time frame. I played a few years um, at, for Waikato in the National League after I came back from America and then I maybe one year and then I went off and then I came back so this is kind of the the next turning point which I'm really proud of this chapter like it's such a cool thing and I I remember at the time thinking this is going to be a cool story to tell down the line Mm -hmm. um, because I ended up back living with my parents I would have been 23 24 um, 2008 so it was the global financial crisis mm. so I didn't have a job and there weren't a lot of jobs out there and I was living in Hamilton with my parents I'd sort of given up on the professional football dream I was still playing National League so I was getting a little bit of money but I didn't really have a lot of direction so I was like what am I going to do how am I going to make some money and then 
so when I was in America in the summers, I would play poker. Um, online poker had just been through this big boom. Uh, Chris Moneymaker had won the World Series of Poker. Like everyone was playing poker and not that many people were good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd made quite a bit of money just in the summers, just playing one-on-one. It's called like heads-up tournaments. So you, you, know, you bring $50 to the table, someone else does, the winner takes it all. And so I did that for a few years and then I sort of stopped and then I came back. I was like, when I was back living with my parents, dial-up internet in my house, I had my own laptop. I was like, what if I just try to become a professional poker player? What if I just commit my weeks to playing poker and getting better and see how much money I can make? I don't have much to lose. Like, you know, I wasn't paying rent. I I had no responsibilities. And I somehow talked my parents into it. I was like, I'm just going to give it a go. Just let me... I'm going to try it for a month and just see how we get. Yeah, so right now I'm like, okay, you're a professional or like athlete, like grinding harder as you come home. And now you're kind of morphing into like a bum, like a computer computer geek kind of thing. How did your parents like say, oh, yeah, give it a go? Like, They just must be so supportive of you. They were really, and again, like they're really supportive. Because that's in a way going from one end of the stick to the other. Yeah. I think they probably, they understood where I was at. Like it wasn't like I'd given up on my professional dream through lack of um, trying or motivation. Mm. Like I'd really given it a go and I just sort of understood my level. And I was also applying for jobs. Like this was kind of like the default option, but there just weren't jobs out there yeah and right. then i i think it was through showing them how much money i was making which essentially convinced them that it was good but also yeah, i was yeah. 24 like who get like they they don't have control <laughs> over me at that point uh but it, it only took a few weeks and i would show them my winnings i would show them my account on pokerstars yeah. and i'd say i made a thousand dollars us this week and they would say like there was a bit of um, skepticism, but there was also a bit of holy shit. Like I remember Dad being like, "Oh, right, this sounds interesting." <laughs> so I, I made a, I don't know, I, I sort of made a promise to myself. I was like, "Look, if I can have three months in a row making a profit, um, making good money, I had like a thousand dollars a week as my mm-hmm. as my target. target yeah. If I can get around that." then I think I can consider myself a professional poker player and then I will go and move wherever I want to because I just need my laptop and internet connection. Yeah, yeah. And I did it. So I did three months in a row and I was playing 50. I moved up stakes. I'd do 100 or sometimes $200 games. The thing about poker is there's this, you know, is poker gambling. Like if you go to a casino and you're playing roulette mm. or you're playing blackjack or you're playing pokies, that's gambling because the house has the edge. Like the house will always win in the long term. When you're playing poker, and especially if you're playing against one person, you just need to have an edge on them. You need to be better at poker than they are, and in the long term you will win. So I sort of studied these poker websites. I had some friends that were playing. We had exchanged strategy and tactic. And I would find that I would be a lot better than these people I was playing against. So I was Mm. like, well, why not? Like, shit, here we go. All right. So... The story evolves in me completing those three months, like hitting my targets, and I'm like, all right, summer's coming up. Where do I want to live? I just need, you know, I just need internet connection. So I was like, it was my favourite place in New Zealand, Mount Maunganui. So moved over to Mount Maunganui. I had a friend over there. We got a place on Valley Road, like right by the beach. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and lived there for a summer. 
and like again looking back man like what a life I would you know, we'd go out drinking two or three yeah. times a week. Uh, I would still be playing National League football. And then my day job, I'd have a beanbag out on the deck and I'd load up the laptop and I would play one-on-one heads-up, sit-and-goes against people from all around the world. I would, you know, if I'd play a $100 game, I might win three in the morning and say, all right, that's it, $300 US for the day. That's my day's work. I'd go to the gym, uh, you know. Life was good. And <laughs> Fuck, that is awesome. So then uh, I met this this group of guys over there who were also professional poker players. Yeah. Like really uncanny, just a, an old connection called, called Sean Goldsbury, who we had on our podcast. Mm-hmm. And he was linked up with the Scottish guy, Puggy, who was one of the world's best players. And they took me under their wing and they said, don't play these one-on-one games, play tournament poker. That's where the real money is. We'll teach you how to play tournaments and then we'll back you, so we'll pay all of your buy-ins, and then in exchange you give us a percentage of the money you make. So I, I was like, yeah, this is, sounds legit. How good. So I ended up moving <laughs> in with them. So we got this big house in Papamoa yeah. where we lived for about two years. And we would buy in for $3,000 worth of tournaments every day. I would play about... 12 to 16 at a time I'd have two monitors up and there'd be all these little tables and so it's an unbelievable house there was five of us living there we were all professional poker players the way poker is in online poker is you've got so much action if you're doing it this way you've got so much action on your screens you can't really afford to get up from your seat you can go have a quick piss or go to the toilet yeah. but you can't really be away from your screen for too long so we um hired a maid who would come in and she would make us breakfast and lunch and she would come and make us sandwiches and drop them off at our tables and drinks or anytime we'd need something we'd be like hey Karen I need something you know looking back absolutely ridiculous um and (laughs) it was fucking weird it was amazing and so this guy Sean we talked about um he lived downstairs I lived upstairs but anytime someone would go deep in a tournament so you'd start with 16 by the end of the day, so maybe you play for eight or nine hours, someone might make a final table and there'd mm. be some big money at these final tables. So one, Sean made a final table of one of the biggest tournaments out there and he won, I think it was $320,000 in the end. So we were all around his uh, computer. There was five of us. You know, we were on the beers because it was like late yeah, afternoon yeah, yeah. at this point. Every time someone got knocked out of this tournament, he would make another ten, twenty, fifty, hundred thousand dollars $100,000 as he got down to the final two. Yeah, yeah. And we were going crazy. Like, I remember that night, like, the celebrations were wild. There was so, like, the the relationship with money in that house was so detached. We had a guy, Chris Mormon, who ended up living with us, who uh, is now the winningest online poker player, tournament poker player of all time. He's won about $36 million. And so he would win tournaments for $50,000, $100,000, and it wouldn't be such a big deal because it would yeah. happen all the time. Uh so yeah, we did that for a while and then we decided to move to Queenstown. It's like, oh, we've had enough at Papamoa, let's go to move to Queenstown for a bit. Uh, again, we we rented out three apartments all next to each other. My uh, wife, now wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, we can talk about later, she moved down with us and we sort of just took the party to Queenstown. And we did that for, I don't know, four or five months. Uh, eventually they ended up moving to Vegas, all the other guys that I was living with, but because of the connection I'd made with Bon, we weren't really keen on Vegas. We moved to Auckland. Uh, did it for a while there, but it was different 
without that community of other poker players around us. Uh, right. I would get up and load up my tables and play poker. Everyone else in the house would get up and go to work, go to work and do yeah. things and interact with society. And then I would feel over time like this this isn't a path forward for me. Yeah, I suppose coming to the end of that, how did it end? Because this sounds quite ideal. Yeah, the thing about it is um, in the long term, you if you're better than the people you're playing against in the long term, you're going to win. Mm-hmm. But how long is the long term? Because luck also does play a big part in, in the short term. Mm-hmm. So you might go, you might go two or three months without making money, and then you might win a tournament for thirty thousand dollars. Yeah. Uh, and as I got more responsibility, and I was starting about started thinking about things like starting a family or buying a house or being a responsible adult. Yeah. That uncertainty of income grew on me and it was that stability um weighed on me. But also the games got harder. So in those early days people were useless. Like money was easy. But as the years went by and there were more poker training websites and mm. people sort of caught up it wasn't quite so easy to smash the field like I used to. So the games were getting tougher. The swings were hard to take. I didn't like not being, interacting with people, the social element, and decided it was time to... So you never lost like thousands and thousands of dollars? Yes, lots of times. And then, so the best day I had, I think I won two tournaments for... I think I won one tournament for 25000 and another for 15000 on the same day. But leading up to that, I probably lost about, I probably lost more than that over the last, over the two months before. Yeah. So I might have lost $40,000 over two months and then I won $35,000 yeah, okay. in a day. And then after that, I'd have a few wins. But again, like the, the money was really good for the first few years and it funded my lifestyle and mm-hmm. allowed us to just live a life of freedom. And then, yeah, it sort of toughened up. The games got tougher and, and the money became more of a stressor. Um, on that then, we talk about it's not gambling, but you're playing with a lot of money. Did that ever play on your nerve that you may have a a gambling issue? Yeah, yeah, it did. Um, that's a really good question. Um, part of... Joining up with the syndicate was it took away the risk from me. Yeah. Okay. So I was no longer at risk of losing any of my money. Because you're using their Because they, I was yeah, using yeah, yeah. so so they were backing me the same way that they would back a stock that they thought had good potential and was gonna rise. They thought this guy's gonna be a winning player, we're gonna back him and we'll take a percentage of his revenue. So that was a safety net. Um but the relationship between Wenders gambling become problematic is a question I have struggled with because while playing poker and winning and being good at it I thought was okay at the same time I did have a gambling problem when I would drink and I'd Mm -hmm. go to the casino and I would sports bet or things like that that I didn't have an edge on Mm -hmm. and I wasn't able to differentiate between the two so it culminated in Shit, when was this on the timeline? Um, it might have been. It, it might have been before I moved to the Mount. Uh, I lived in Hamilton, quite close to town. So when we would go out drinking, 
uh, I would always walk home. And, so easy. And walking home meant walking home past the casino. Past the cares. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So 2 a.m., 3 a.m., whenever town closes, I would stumble home and it would always catch my eye and I would always go in. Yeah. Sometimes I'd, well, I'd do a $100 challenge or I'd double down or whatever. Um, and there was one night where I lost it all. I, I think I had maybe about $3,500 in my bank account yeah. and I emptied it all. Hundred dollars on black, shit. It's come red. Chase my losses, two hundred. Yeah, shit. Yeah. Four hundred. Shit, I had to get some money out. Fuck it, six hundred. Oh, all right, here we go. All or nothing. Thousand dollars. Fuck. And I remember, so I went home and I was drunk. So the worst hangover, waking up in the morning. But I remember writing a note to mum and I said, um, "I need to talk to you in the morning. Uh, I've got a problem." And put it on the bench and then woke up and forgotten I'd written the note. And I was like, oh, geez, what the fuck happened last night? And I was like, fucking oh, ratchet. fuck, the casino. Oh. And then mum's like, hey, Steve, um, just let me know when you when you want to talk. So I ended up, like, I was like, yeah, look, I wrote that because I've got an issue. Um, whenever I drink, I get out of control with my gambling mm-hmm. and I want to ban myself from ever going to the casino. So I went in and I self-banned. And they said, okay, that's fine. I was going to ask that because I've got one of my good mates. He's done that before. Yeah. So I said, don't ever let me back in. Yeah. And they said, that's fine. Uh, They took a photo of me. They've got this like photo recognition technology. Yeah, yeah. And and that was all good until I wanted to get back into the casinos to play poker tournaments because when I started working for the Herald, Mm. uh, Sky City wanted me to play in these tournaments to write about them. But because I'd banned myself from the casinos, I wasn't allowed until I'd done six gambling counselling sessions. <laughs> so I ended up doing six was, gambling counselling sessions. I ask, how do you unban yourself? <laughs> yeah, you've got to do six gambling counselling So that's what I did. I sat down with a counsellor on six times and we talked through the dangers of gambling and, you know, the pokies and how bad it is. And I didn't tell them my motivation was to play poker tournaments because I didn't, yeah. want, the, I didn't want to have to go through the is poker gambling. But I did it. I probably lied through my teeth quite a lot uh, and then got the ban revoked and then ended up playing poker at the <laughs> Sky City. But I have been pretty good. Um, and sports betting was another one. I always thought I was the man at sports betting and I'd be skiding about the wins. But then you don't really talk about the losses. losses no. And while I had an edge on things like local football, I would start betting on World Cups and Premier League games, which I had no edge on. I was just fucking firing money away yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah I banned after a few World Cups ago I banned myself from sports betting haven't bet on sports since uh, and I never gamble when I drink and I very rarely go to the casino I, only on only on a few special nights when there's a group of others going and I've got some sort of fail safe models where I will only get I'll get a hundred dollars or a couple hundred dollars out or whatever and then I'll give someone else my wallet and I say yeah. whatever happens don't yeah, yeah, give me my yeah. wallet again, and then I'll <laughs> always try and like, hey man, I'll just, just kidding, like, give me my wallet, bro. Come on, just give me the good feeling. Like, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> <Yeah>. nah, man. <laughs> um, so with that, you've stopped your professional pursuit on football. You've gone into poker. Just coming to the end of kind of your poker area. Um, at times throughout your life, how have you dealt with the feeling of like being lost? Like lacking passion or purpose, you know, because in a sense, you you pursued a career in football, 
it kind of didn't go the way you wanted. Um, you started poker, loved it, lived a great life. Coming to the end of that, you realised you kind of needed to pick a more stable job, interact with society a bit more, maybe. How have you dealt with that kind of the feeling of yeah, being lost? I think up until that point, life had just been this fun adventure where things had just kind of happened and there wasn't a lot of responsibility. I, I don't think it was until I started working at the Herald, which is the next step. So after I stopped playing poker, the first job I applied for was at the Herald. Mm-hmm. And a step that we didn't cover is I worked at the Waikato Times for a bit and I worked for Oceania Football and somewhere in the mix in there. Um, and like now I've been there for 13 years and I never wanted to be a journalist. I never wanted necessarily to get into media. My dad was a journalist for 20, 30 years at the Waikato Times, and he helped me get in the door. But I definitely did feel a little bit lost, especially in those early years of, like, who am I? Like, what, what, what is the big play here? I feel like there's some pressure to really establish a career. Um, in your mid twenties, or mm. you, you feel like everyone else around you has it figured out. They've got a trade, or they're an accountant, or they have a business. And here I was, mid twenties, starting at the bottom, essentially, of a journalism career. Now, ju- journalism isn't the best field to get into. Even then, it was kind of like you know, it's not high paying. You're doing mm. it because you love it, and I didn't love it. It was just a job. So I certainly felt, at times a little bit lost Um, and I'd say even until I started doing the podcast is when I felt a real passion towards something like I'd enjoyed writing and I'd get a good buzz from like writing a good piece for the Herald but the rest of it like I was a sports editor and I didn't even particularly love sport it was just something I was kind of good at but I wouldn't watch a lot of sport it was just I was just kind of I don't know on this ride and I feel like that's quite a common theme for people in their 20s and funnily enough I remember Seamus who I co-host the podcast with he was kind of like a mentor through my 20s and there's one email he sent me and he's like hey bro just letting you know your early 20s are a fucking wild time like just know that no one really has it figured out and it's probably the trickiest time of your life and I kind of always remember that because you feel like there's this societal pressure that everyone else has it figured out, and no one does. Mm. But you you kind of just, I don't know, you're banking up experience for, for something greater that's going to happen down the road. Mm. No, I definitely agree with bits and pieces you said. There's um, an analogy that I read in a book once that was like, you've got a, either a job, a career, or a calling. And so like a job is, is we just show up, get paid, you just need money. A career somewhere where you kind of like, you're good at it, you go there and, um, yeah, you can see yourself working there. And then the calling is like, it's like your, your passion and stuff. Like there's an analogy of a, a bricklayer. So the bricklayer who's just job, he's just, he's just there to lay bricks. And they're just, say, building a church. But the career is like, um, I go there, I'm building this church, I'm fucking good at it, I like what I do. Then the third one, the calling is like, I'm building this church for the people of Christian, whatever, like it is what they really, really love. And I imagine that the journalism for you is kind of a career 
And then now the podcast has become like the calling, like the thing that you love for the other people, doing it for other people as well. Because that's part of it, eh? Is like, you want to feel useful in a way, and feeling useful is giving back to society in a way to make it better than the way you came into it. Hard out. Man, yeah. that's, that's really perceptive. Yep, totally, totally agree with that. Because at the time, like in your 20s, you're just trying to, at first you just need a job. You need to pay. You need to pay for alcohol. You need to pay for your Maccas on a Sunday kind of thing. That's your job. You don't know what you want. You don't know where you're wanting to go, um, what you enjoy doing, for instance, soccer, football. Not necessarily where you're going to get the money from. So your passion going through high school and stuff is football, but it's not a calling. Mm. Or it is for some, but not mm. all of us. And it takes a lot of time to actually figure out what your calling is. Mm. Or, yeah, what your career. Like I'm, I reckon I'm in a career, but it's not really a calling. Like, yeah, I'm good at it, but it's not the best. Yeah, man, that that's that's really onto it, and and it's only like the podcast has been going four years, and it is the calling, and it's the validation you get from people writing in saying how much something you've put out there mm. impacts them or has helped them is really the driver, and that's all we lived off for the first few years because we didn't make money from it. It was just the good feedback. You, yeah. you just a message, you know. There weren't many people listening at the start. It was just a message from someone. Hey really enjoyed that chat, like it helped me out a lot. And like <laughs> far out, like there's something really special in that. You don't really get that on your job, eh? Nah, not, sometimes you, you would write something that you'd put a lot of time into and you might get one or two messages. It's like you get paid to do it. You get paid to do a good job. Yeah. You know, like it's expected of you. Yeah. But doing like the podcast, it's not expected. Yeah, but also I don't think we could have done the podcast without the lived experience that, you know, if we'd started the podcast 10 years earlier it wouldn't have been the same mm. because we use all of our lived experiences and um, the way that we've learned to interact and be empathetic and just be inquisitive and have our you know our, our worldly views mm. shape the conversations so I think that's been important and yeah making it what it is uh, did you ever struggle with your identity like that you're just known as the football player like just if we go back to being unsuccessful in the professional kind of side. Like, you mentioned you're coming back from America, you're leaving that kind of time capsule aside, coming back and all your friends have got apprenticeships, you know, working their way up the ladder. Did you ever feel, yeah, that you had to play catch-up? I kind of reinvented myself as, you know, I, I certainly was Steve, the, the soccer player, mm. um, and then I was Steve, the poker player. Like, everyone knew, everyone was sort of infatuated by that story, like oh. a professional poker player, yeah. like that was my label and I lived into that and I sort of, you know. Uh, Is it again a label, like eh? Yeah. And then Steve the Journalist was a little bit low after after those ones, Steve the Journalist, it wasn't, it, it wasn't as um, exciting as those <laughs> other two labels. But I kind of, I think by that point, and we're talking sort of late 20s here, I was more comfortable with who I was and I'd mm. sort of grown into, you know, early 20s I was trying things and not not really sure. By late 20s and especially into my 30s and I was a journalist before the podcast, I was pretty sure of who I was. Mm. Like I wasn't too worried about what other people thought of me. I was just happy. In fact, that's a good one. So, yeah, we jumped over your finding journalism. So we'll go back to that. Finding journalism and working with your dad at the Waikato Times. So as well, your old man was a keen soccer player? 
Yeah, he wasn't very good. He was a journalist. Yeah. yeah. So I remember at childhood, we would travel up and um, it would be his job to cover Melville or yeah. Northern Districts or whatever. So we'd go up as a family, he'd cover the game, write a report for the paper. Um, so when I came back from America, before I set off on my professional football adventure, he got me a job at the Waikato Times. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I went in there with him. He did like a seven till three and I would go in there with him. Um, and again, like it's it's actually pretty cool reflecting on this, um, like the leg up I've had and the position of privilege that learning how to write was helped by my dad who was one of the best writers in Hamilton mm-hmm. and that every time I would file a story, he would look through it and correct things and tell me how to do it better. So you don't get that sort of intense help from someone unless it's mm. your dad. You know, even a really good editor isn't going to go through every story. But it helped me improve really quickly because I had the best editor in, in New Zealand yeah, looking, okay. o- looking over my work. If you look at it in a business sense, having a manager, um, to say I made this realisation a while ago and my team that I work with, team of designers, there's about eight of us, and one day I was able to go, he brings this to the table, them, that, him, that. Like a rugby team, you know, like you have your wingers, your fast people, you have your 10, your smarter people, person, whatever, your big, heavy grunters, your forwards and all that. Like everybody in a team brings a certain attribute. As a manager or a boss or a leader, you're not necessarily, you get someone into your team, you don't really mould them into a position that they're not. Did you ever feel like that your dad was, trying to mould you into something you weren't or was it more of he was honing in on your skills then? Nah, it, I, I was just looking for a job. I, I was so in this was place where it was just a job. He did me a big favour by getting me a gig and it was minimum wage and it was literally just something to do. And that's how I kind of talk about stumbling into mm-hmm. journalism. It was just because there was nothing else I could do. He got me a job there. I kind of got okay and mm-hmm. then got good at it. Um but he, he definitely didn't. <laughs> My old man is a is a pretty complex uh, character, but he certainly wasn't forcing or pushing or even trying to influence me in any direction. It was just, he's here. This works. I'm going to help. If he's going to fail something, we're going to make it good. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> it's funny. Like I remember Bruce coming home on Friday afternoons, and before I really understood, like drinking or how people are different after they've had a few beers i was like shit bruce is always um he's always in a good mood on friday afternoons eh? i don't know what that's all about and then when i'd work with him he was his job he had this bell on his desk and he would ring it so his his shift would finish at three o'clock and there'd be a bunch of others in the newsroom that would finish at three two he would ring this bell every friday and it would signal it was time to go to the pub so as soon as he everyone would get up from their desks and they'd all go to the pub around the corner and you know smash a few pints and then go home it's like fuck that's why because every friday <laughs> man's coming home half cut <laughs> the secrets of journalism anything else you'd like to add on that um entry point into journalism um i think just the i always think so many people i know do what their parents did or follow their you know, their family path. Mm. And it's so easy to do. And I certainly stumbled into it because 
my dad was into journalism. We had so many books growing up. Um, reading and writing was an important part of my childhood. So it's easy to sort of just fall in line. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it was, I think learning to write and learning to write well is an incredibly valuable skill, which has... Like writing your podcast descriptions and stuff. Mate, so much of the podcast stuff is a combination of these skills that we've picked up over time. Like, it's such an art. Even writing out the intro. Yeah. You know? It's sh- fucking hard. It's hard, man. Yeah, it's hard. It, it's, it takes skill to shape it and make it entertaining. And um, this, this writing is, is everywhere. So if you get good at it, mm-hmm. it's a superpower. Like... I always thought if I lost my job and there's redundancies looming all the time in journalism, being able to write well, like I could do anything. Yeah. Because not many people can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe I need to hire a journalist to do my writing. <laughs> you get better, man. <laughs> oh, that's practice. Yeah. yeah, it is practice. Uh, but then it's, yeah. yeah, I'm good with numbers, not words. That's, yeah. that's my issue. There you go. Um, did you ever feel like, you just really wanted to pave your own way, though, um, instead of following in your dad's footsteps. Is that kind of why you did poker as well? To get away from that? I think I did poker because um, I was attracted to the glamorous... Yeah, I think it was, actually. Like, making it on your own, doing something different for yourself and being yeah. a success at it. Um, so, yeah, I did... I did want to pave my own way. And, and yeah, saying it out loud is why the podcast has been so appealing because that's our own thing. That's mm. not it's not just writing well like my dad did. That's doing something mm. for me that we have created, which is different. Mm. So your next turning point is meeting your wife. What did she think about dating a poker player? <laughs> so the story with Bond... Bon is a legend, like four kids. She holds our house together. Um, but when we met, she was 21. I was a few years old. I was 23, 24. Uh, and she was my best friend's little sister. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> There's like unwritten rules that you yeah, yeah. So I, I make the gag that if you're going to hook up with your best friend's sister, you better marry her. Better marry yeah. her. Yeah. <laughs> and you better have kids with her. Um, so she had just been traveling in India she had been six months in India with her boyfriend I think they broke up over there and she came back we were living in this poker house in Papamoa and I was like Bon come and hang out you know yeah. come and hang out I think I'd, I'd always been quite keen on her so come and hang out for the for the night and to be honest we hooked up that first night and then she moved in since, and we have not been apart since was it not a oh fuck what have I done like uh, the next morning after you lost all your money, the that that it wasn't it certainly wasn't like from that. my from my <laughs> perspective because she she didn't have she was coming back and she didn't really know what she was doing yeah so she had this epic Papamoa place with these quite likable poker guys this maid who would bring like breakfast and lunch <laughs> and stuff and we were partying a lot. And so for her, I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. And uh, I remember like Outrageous Fortune was big at the time. And she would just like watch Outrageous Fortune episodes like until I'd finished playing poker and yeah. then we'd go out for a few drinks or go to the beach. Like it was a an awesome time, but there was no courting. It was like we were basically from that first night, we yeah. were boyfriend, girlfriend, and we've been together 14 years since. 
Like just non-stop. So yeah, moving to Queenstown was tough for her because that was her and not, I think there was eight of us mm-hmm. other men in their mid-twenties who were kind of nerdy poker players, if I'm honest. Mm. Um, so she got a job at the airport and she was kind of just hanging out with us. And then when we moved back to Auckland, that's when she, so she's a radio, uh, radiographer now. So she retrained and we went through this whole journey together. But yeah, meeting her was, that that has been the rock, the stability that I've needed. Yeah, um, yeah the realities of having four young kids I don't think anyone could really understand what life is like in the Holloway house, but it's chaos and she holds that shit together. But the there's, the distance we have travelled as people from when we both met when she was 21, I was 23 and we were pieces of shit, yeah. you know, watching TV all day to the insane amount of structure and organisation and work that goes on in our house now is night and day. But that's the huge part about being in a relationship, eh? is like that, the growth that you do together. Yep. You come from something and you become... Something, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> Lack of better words. Yeah. Um, so commitment, I was thinking about it the other day, because obviously you committed 18, 14 years, 18, 14. Yeah, I should know this, 2010, yeah, f- yeah, 14. 14. So commitment is kind of like uh, when you refuse all other options, uh, in a sense that there's no easy way out. Um, so like you, you commit to something with no excuses. Um, what does... Like commitment look like for you and Bon, in a sense that when times get tough, like how do you actually deal with all that stuff? Times get tough a lot. Yeah, especially with four children. I yeah, imagine. man, and it's just perspective. Um, like how do you teamwork stuff? Like what? What? I suppose communication really is like. What does communication look like for you to get through tough times? It's hard, and I don't always get it right if I'm honest, and I don't think, it's really hard to juggle um, a career and a job and family and friendships and get it all right Mm. and divide that time up appropriately. And when you have young kids, sleep deprivation is a killer. And it doesn't matter how onto it you are, if you're up three, four times a night and your Mm. sleep is fucked, then you're going to be in a bad mood. Um and it's really hard to navigate that. And we're in it right now. Our youngest is three months and is up all the time. And there's often another one that's up as well. And the beauty of having your fourth is that you know this is just for a short period and that we're in really rocky waters at the moment, but it will be smoother. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like um, short-term pain, long-term gain. Like I love the thought of a big family and when they're older and they're more independent and you know family dinners and stuff but to get there you got to go through this period where it's fucking nappies and it's shitty tantrums and it's just like every day feels like you're on this hamster wheel but because we've got three and like the third youngest is at this cool place now where she's two and a half and she's her own little character i was like okay well it's just it's gonna be tough waters for another year and then we're kind of done like we're not even any more kids we're kind of out of it um but it is just knowing you're in it together and and that's something we always talk about like being on the same team. Like sometimes you'll get shitty at each other and you'll, you know, have little microaggressions over stuff that doesn't really matter. Mm. But at the end, just remember we're on the same team. Like we are actually both in the same boat. Do you um, ever like debriefs together when like, all the kids are in bed or anything? <sighs> we should do more of it. Um, it's tough like 
the reality is that, like we were talking about the stretching at the start, it's like by the time you've had your busy day and you've dealt with the tantrums and you've got the kids to sleep and you've tidied up mm. and then you finally plonk on the couch and you might not, and you might have had a few busy nights. I might have been out doing a podcast, or she might have been working, or whatever. You're kind of just exhausted. Like it's hard. You've got to really yeah, make an yeah. effort to be present and and have those conversations. And yeah. I think dating your wife and and um, you know, making carving out a certain amount of time each week or each month is really important. And it's something that we're not doing well right now because again we're just in the shit we're just trying yeah. to survive at the moment but i know from what we've done with the past three that it's something that we will do again soon <laughs> date night's coming bon. <laughs> <laughs> um so advice for a young man like myself what is a secret to i suppose longevity in a relationship me and bond didn't have a fight for i don't know maybe the first year like there was just no friction, there was no tension at all, and I can only go on what my experience has been. But I see a lot of other relationships or people around that same time, and there was always some sort of problem or issue, yeah. or there was fights, or there were they didn't like the way they'd done something, and I just can't remember anything like that. So I feel like I'm really lucky to have found Bon. You know, with early twenties to the rest of our lives just found someone that I connected so well to. And I think it's probably because I was best friends with her brother. So she grew up sort of being around the sort of person who I was. Yeah, and I'm yeah. very similar to her dad as well. Um, but I think choosing your partner is the most important decision. Choosing who you're going to marry is the most yeah. important decision you're going to make in your life. So make sure it's a good decision. Make sure they make you laugh. Um <laughs> Yeah, you never had like a checklist on this is what a wife for me wanted. I want no, no yeah. way. I, it just sort of happened. It just fell in yeah, place. it just sort of happened. Um, and I even remember early twenties, like I didn't have a lot of girlfriends. I was kind of like, oh shit, why, why is no one really interested in me? Like other people had girlfriends. But I was like, oh, I don't know, I'm doing something wrong. And then it just happened. And then yeah. fourteen years of <laughs> had a girlfriend. So yeah, don't force it. It'll come. It'll happen. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, second to last turning point, getting a job at New Zealand Herald. Was this just a natural progression or was this something that you really, really wanted? Nah, again, it was just, like I said, after I finished playing poker, it was the first job I applied for. And I think there was like three interviews to get the spot. The big question they had was, what the hell have you been doing for the last three years? So I had to convince them that playing uh -huh. poker was a good thing instead of just like, <laughs> yeah. this guy's just been out fucking gambling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I had a bit of a spiel organised about, sort of what I've been telling you about how it's skill over luck and yeah. how I've been supporting my way but realised that I need to get back into it. And one of the guys who I still work with now loved it. He was like, I love the poker. Like yeah, that's, yeah, That yeah, sold yeah. me on you as a as the right man for the job. Uh, so, yeah, it was it was weekend work. Like I, I worked Saturday, Sundays for the first five years, I think. Like, start again, starting at the bottom, just taking my medicine. It's like, all right, okay, this is what I've got to do. Um and then, yeah, slowly getting a little bit better each year. And, yeah, <laughs> I've been there 13 years. So you're still there now? With still the there now. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, at any point, did you feel like you were just being dragged through the process of doing things? Because quite often people can be driven or dragged. Do you think at that point you just, you're just being dragged? You just needed a job, you just needed to work, 
obviously had family coming through. We talk about job, career, calling. It's kind of just a career. Mm. Like, did, did you just feel like you're just getting dragged through life? I didn't feel like I was being dragged. I feel like I was, was in... It was something you're passionate about. I was about. in control, but it wasn't... I never thought, shit, this is this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Like, this is amazing. And I still don't feel that now. Um, I just felt like for that time, that was good. I had good work-life balance. Um, I enjoyed the social circles we were in. It just it just was kind of quite easy, I think. Um, and I kind of, I guess I deep down knew that by improving my writing, um, there would be opportunity. Like, mm. so you've got so many years of work. So here I was, like, late 20s. I was like, fuck, I've got 30 more years of work ahead of me. It's crazy, eh? 30 years. Like, I was like, I'm probably going to change career a bunch of times. Yeah. Like, I, I'm just kind of enjoying being in the now. Uh, I, I just definitely didn't feel trapped in any way. Uh, I, it just it just made sense. It was just a, a good, yeah, a good path. Pathway into podcasting. Yeah. It's the latest label. That we can put on you. But uh, in the shower last night, I was actually thinking about it. I was like, fuck, there's so many um, guests that I've listened to that like, I can timestamp them. Like, there's a few of them when I was overseas. I can definitely. And I was like, oh, when I hop out of the shower, I'll just write down a few names. And so for those who don't really know, you're Between Two Bears podcast. And to me, you've become quite iconic because you've done all the New Zealand icons. And I started writing them down. I was like, fuck, there's a massive list, right? So, like, I started listening in during lockdown. And you had, like, Dan Hangman Hooker, Eugene Beerman, Eric Murray, which is also Eric Murray popped up to me when Liv Podmore, mm. ex-track cyclist, um, passed away as well. There's the, um, I can't remember his name, but the Tongan flag bearer. Yeah, Peter. Uh, like, just weird stuff as well. Yeah. Like, But then you also went into, like... Some of the top cricket stars like Jim Neesham, BJ Watling, there's Ross Taylor in the end. I was in India listening to Ross Taylor, like that story about the coaching in that. Didn't know about it. Fucking yeah. unreal. Um, like journalism, so you got like Paddy Gower, Jack Tame, Paul Henry. Paul Henry, like, holy shit. Tom Walsh, like the little story about his tattoo on his foot. Yeah. Um, you got comedy like Lee Hart. Just even like the small thing about the Wakachini chips, like how he rocked up to the meeting, didn't know what he wanted. They're like, what type of chip? And he's just like, oh, what type of chips do you make? And they're yeah. like, one, two, and three. And he's like, well, why not all of them? <laughs> yeah. And it's like, the Waka Changi chip, like, it's fucking sick. So good. Small things like that, eh? Di Henwood, Ben Hurley, Chelsea Lane, like, going into the NBA, basketball, didn't even, like, know anything about it. Mm. Amazing kind of mindset. Um, Dame Susan Devoy. I was, like, in, I think, London at the time. So, like, travelling around, like, Listening to the story about like her shaving her boys' heads and like pissing in the cup, yeah, it's like right, the Rose Bowl, yeah, yeah her Rose Bowl. fuck shit like that. Sir John Kerwin, um, so a lot of mental health on that. Ryan Fox, that was an awesome chat about like getting on the piss and that, and then getting Grant Fox on, and then he he was just talking about like the father son relationships and shit. Oh, it's unreal. Mark Richardson, like the sprinting stories. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, like, as he touched on as well earlier, Dave Wood, just the, he was another interesting one that did a lot of surfing, just lived his life. Lived his life to the fullest, I feel like, in that, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, and then, as well, recently, like, I was listening to that dude who started R&V. Hamish Pinkham. 
Yeah. Yeah. Like, who hasn't gone to R&B? Just, yeah. like, listen to that startup story. And then I was just like, nah, fuck, I can't keep on writing this. As you see, like, massive list. I was like, I, <laughs> I love can't. That, I love but, that. like, that's the whole thing is, like, when Matt asked me if I wanted to catch up with you guys, I was like, well, fuck, these guys aren't going to talk to me. It's like, to me, you guys are like the Richard McCaw of rugby, but in podcasting New Zealand, it's you and Seamus. Yeah. Like, that's the way I feel. And I was just like, holy fuck. Like, nah, nah, nah. But, um... If I go back to the top of the list, um, if I wanted to, oh, if someone wanted to listen to your story and stuff, there's a few podcasts out there, and especially Ambassadors, uh, what you started up is pretty cool, explaining a lot more in depth, or not necessarily in depth, but like more of the background stuff. Um, so I'm not going to really dabble in too much of that, like why you started, how you started, and that. Um, but I'll start with um, your reach has gone. Like far and wide, um, you've hit the top of the top, like all these New Zealand top in all different avenues. Eh, like, like I said, you got cricket, you got rugby, you got um, journalism, comedy. Fuck, now you're doing uh, what do you call it? Those local legends and stuff like yeah. that. Dude, they had the leukemia in there. Mm. Fucking unreal yeah, stories. Josh like, Coleman. Yeah, that's the one. Um, so, do you have to? Do you feel like you have to live up to an expectation now? Now that you've done like all these top people to continue going, do you feel like you still you have to live up to an expectation that your next guest has to be or has to fulfil, say X, Y, and Z? Um, first of all, that's so cool. Like, it's such a buzzy feeling when someone says how much they listen or enjoy or have listened to the podcast. So like oh, going through and hearing that you know it so well is so cool. Like I'm, I, this moment's not lost on me. Um, but to the question, we have a bar of, it's not expectation, it's a standard mm-hmm. we want to upkeep. And it came from, I listened to this uh, podcast with Stephen Bartlett, Secret yeah. Diary of CEO. Fucking and love it, eh? He's he's like the master. He essentially does what we do, but with the biggest, best guests mm. in the world. And he did a podcast years ago where he sort of explained his process. And it's like, my audience expects a certain level, and I'm never going to drop below that level. Mm-hmm. And he talked about how he'd recorded some episodes with some really big names, but they weren't quite there, so he didn't release them. And I thought, fuck, that's, that's really good. That's what we should do. Mm-hmm. So ha- there have been some times where we've had guests, and I haven't... We've really, we, we've never recorded one and not released it, but there's been some where I've thought I've been close and we've ended up doing a bit of clever editing and we might have taken out some big sections because I rate our audience so highly that I don't want to let them down. Mm. So there is that there, there is that expectation from our end of quality. Um, so as long as your guest hits that standard, you're going to be happy with it. Yeah, but it's more on us than the guest. And and this is something I've learned. We essentially at this point are just trying to get the most interesting people we can from any walks of life, mm-hmm. sport, entertainment, music, comedy, whatever it is. And once we decide on a guest, sometimes we don't even know their story that well. We just think they would be interesting to talk to. And then it's our job to find the most interesting things to talk about. So if they haven't, done well I take it quite personally that we didn't do well Mm -hmm. because everyone has a story to tell and especially anyone of profile if they've reached a certain point like 
the journey there is going to be interesting, but that is what separates us is the research we do. So for every guest, we listen to every podcast I've done. We read all the news articles. We go on YouTube. We go on their social media. We contact friends and family in order to really streamline what the most engaging, entertaining angles are. And I think the audience gets that. They can sense the amount of work that goes in and how we've worked so hard. And also the the guest knows if you give this much of a shit about it, like they will pay it back in spades. Mm. So it's kind of the cycle. Um, and we're at a place now, like I, I, the last, I don't know, 20 we've done, I'm really proud. Like I don't think we've dropped the ball on any of them. And I love leaving a record. I get really quite worked up before recording because I do put pressure on myself mm-hmm. for it to be good and then afterwards like driving back from Auckland there's always this feeling of yeah I can't wait to release that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. why did you guys start we used to do this thing um, so me and Shay were both really connected to Melville Football Club mm-hmm. and Seamus was the manager I'd just finished playing but my best friends were coaching and I kind of wanted to be involved so I said, let's do some video stuff every Thursday night at the club rooms and I would interview. So at this point, Seamus was behind the camera and I would be interviewing the coaches and we had a bit of fun with it. And we did a few commentaries, uh, like live streams for games and things. And I mean, Seamus and I have been best friends for a long time. We went to boys high together and we always, when we'd have little talks or we'd be on the beers or we'd have, we always thought, like our gags were quite good. Like, fuck, we should have our own show one day. Like, all the stuff on TV, like, we're better than them. And then it came to a point after that season where we've been doing this video stuff. And I was like, Shay, let's, let's do it. We were always talking about it. Let's do it. Let's start a podcast. And he's like, I don't even know what a podcast is. I was like, let's just get people like what you're doing. Let's just get people we want to learn more about their story. I think me and Shay are very inquisitive genuine people like we take great um we get energized by finding out what made people tick and i think back to those melville days there would be a lot of young kids in the team 17 18 19 year olds and one of our favorite things after games was to get one of these guys in the middle and we'd just sort of ask them questions about their lives, like interrogate them and find out, you know, if they're in a relationship, what their goals are, what their job is, do they like it, you know, what what drives them, all this sort of stuff. We would really like that. It's like, let's do that with people we know on a slightly higher profile. So that's what we did. So I bought a mic and I was like $220 at JB Hi-Fi. That was a, yeah. a bit of a statement because that was a lot of money at the time. And I was like, oh, but bought this mic, we're going to do it. And sent a message to Aaron Scott, who was our very first guest, who's a grassroots footballing legend around here in the Waikato. And we did, I don't know, it must have been about 60 or 70 minutes, which felt like a long time for us, and just asked them questions that we kind of always wanted to ask. And the re- I, I sort of say this because a lot of people starting podcasts at the moment, and they're kind of the flashy new thing in media. And they always say, what's the key to success, or how do you grow an audience? And I think... What worked for us was there was never an expectation of growing an audience. There was never an expectation that we'd make money from it. We just did it because we loved it. It, was our, it became our favorite part of the week. Having a few beers, getting someone in, and just having a good chat with them. And we'd learn from them, and we'd have fun. And then, like I talked about before, you'd put it out there, and you'd get sometimes you get a few messages back of people yeah. saying, hey, man, 
that chat was awesome. Yeah, Loved yeah, it. Yeah. And that would be all you need. And then, like I was saying about reaching 50, like the first year, no one was listening. Like there was a <laughs> small pocket of people in Hamilton that were listening, and but not really. Like yeah. it was just, it's a hobby, know, yeah. it was a hobby. It was a hobby. But it's like one thing I love about it is being able to put a mic in front of somebody and somehow it just like peels all these layers back. Yeah. And you can just get in deep, man. Like real deep with certain stuff. So our second guest, Paul Nixon, he'd been my high school coach yeah, and my yeah. youth coach. I was at school with his son. Yeah. yeah. Um, Matt. My, Matt Nixon, yeah. So he'd been a professional footballer. He had these amazing stories of like fighting coaches and buses and stuff. But his wife passed away. He had four mm. kids and his wife passed away of cancer. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'd always known it about him, but it's not the sort of thing you ever talk about. Like oh, when you're going to talk to your coach about that. Yeah. But that was, that was an aha moment where I was like, fuck, this is something special here because we talked about how difficult that was, how he picked up the pieces, you know? Mm. And I think that was the first time I was like, yeah, this could actually be really special. I got my brother-in-law in. So my, my wife, brother-in-law lost their mum for cancer when they were teenagers Mm -hmm. never talked to him about it um asked him you know how we dealt with he was in america at the time so these these conversations we're having i was like this is different shay we're onto something here like these are meaningful conversations where like you say you're peeling back the layers you're getting to some genuine conversations and a lot of the time our friends would come in and it would send them in a bit of a spiral. It's like, fuck. And a little bit like me talk, telling all this mm. to you, it makes you reflect on where you've come from and how you've changed and what your life was and what you want it to be. And Oh, yeah. similar in a way, like one of my best friends, like she's got a glass eye through a car accident. And every time I'm around her, it's in a social gathering. So like that's a prime example. It was like, yeah, I got Becca on to talk about how it's like impacted her life. For instance, like it was only recently that it, or not recent, like a couple of years, but do you notice when people look at one eye instead of the other eye or start noticing in like just small things like that that you can't really ask in a general conversation? No. Do you get the opportunity to? Yeah. It's fucking unreal. Yeah, it gives you permission. It, yeah. It, yeah, it's it's very hard to find those situations. Well, like, yeah, my best friend, her, her dad passed away in cancer. So like the first time I cried on a podcast was like talking to her about that. It's like, well, fuck, I haven't actually sat down and had a chat to you about it. Mm. Let's do it like this. Yeah. Fucking weird, eh? Yeah. What do you love most about it? Is it just the fact of being able to like see what ticks behind them, peel a few layers back? I love, I love that it helps people. I love that. Um, I love the inspirational factor, and when you get people that reach the very top of their field which essentially most of our guests are they have all suffered some sort of challenges or adversity along the way mm. and so many people listening are at these stages of their lives where they haven't quite reached where our guests have but they they can see their path and they can, it helps them push through so i love that we're putting stuff out there that helps people but from a personal perspective it's just the coolest thing to be able to think of who the most exciting, entertaining, engaging people are in New Zealand. And most of the time we get to have a chat with them for mm. two hours. By the end, the connections that we make often turn into friendships. Like I'm in touch with so many of our former guests through DMs or yeah, what yeah, have you yeah, or yeah. see them socially. Uh, 
And like I said, just learning ourselves and you sort of take on the lessons like like the listeners do. Like it helps change you. Mm. Um, whether it's Owen Gutenbill talking about his parenting journey or Josh Coman about his perspective shift with cancer or Grant Fox talking about giving back to big buddies or, you know, it's just everything. Just I think it's changed me. It certainly made me more emotional. Um, and I just thought, yeah, I, I, there's just lots of different parts which, which are cool for it for me. How long did it take for you to uh, feel comfortable in what you guys are doing? I think quite early I felt comfortable. Um, it changes when the video element came in. So for the first 20, 30 maybe episodes, there was no video. Mm-hmm. And just the voice, it seemed a lot safer. Uh, now we're at the sort of high production value where every episode is videoed and we cut out little snippets of it and tens of sometimes hundreds, sometimes millions of people are watching these clips, which is a little bit more confronting and I'm sort of starting to get used to it now. So we had this episode with Miyamoto um, and at the end I started crying because the power of her story overwhelmed me and they were happy tears. It was like her story is is one of horrific domestic violence and how she has come out the other side and is now a world champion fighter. And at the end I was sort of saying this is one of the most inspirational stories over here and the feeling overwhelmed me and I started crying and Shay was really good and this is something we've learned as well is that showing emotion being authentic being vulnerable is really appealing mm-hmm. and don't come in and try and save it so we just sat with it and she sat and I just sort of regained my composure and then finished it off with tears in my eyes so I knew that was a powerful moment we made the decision to clip that out and put it on social media and that was the first time I'd cried publicly but it, like I said I think it had had about 500,000 views of me putting myself out there being at the most vulnerable I've ever been so that was challenging was it challenging? No I, I don't like putting it out there I knew was the right thing to do um, and I was really happy with the response but if I think back to when we started, that would have scared the shit out of me. So it's, I kind of just like evolved as the pod yeah. grew and got bigger and I got more used to the yeah. attention. So as the podcast got bigger and stuff, and you started off with this, well, if you could sum up your why right at the beginning, you got to sum it up without giving me the whole story. Why did you, at, you and Seamus start it? At the beginning... Um, I wanted something that we owned that was fun to do and that we would learn from. Yeah. So the fact that it's got bigger now, um, money's involved. I'm imagining there's a team involved as well. Have you wavered from your why to, to I suppose, like, if there's events going on, just say for instance, Steve Price, like he's in, what is it called? Celebrity. Choose Island. Island. Yeah, like, you know, how, so that's kind of influenced him coming into your podcast, which that's a positive influence, but as well, like, I suppose there's that question about uh, expectations, but you've answered that with your standards. But have you ever wavered from you guys why to fit someone else's needs? Funny you should say that. Um, so the, the the podcast is at a place now where 
people want to come on. So we get a lot of people reaching out saying either I would be great for this podcast or I know someone is. And a few weeks ago, we had someone reach on and they wanted to be a Loki legend and they wanted to give us $10,000 to come on. So they made an offer. Have us as a guest. I think I'd be a good guest. Um, We'll give you $10,000. And we made the decision not to. We said it was close. Like his story was good, but there's something doesn't sit right with us about us not handpicking the people we want. Yeah, right. Um, And it didn't sit right with us and so we said no and I said to Shay like man I think this is actually a real moment like you talk about our why yeah that is really important to us being legit to our audience and not putting something out there just because it's going to make money Mm. we need to put something out there because it's true to what this thing is true to the brand and and true to us so I was like fuck we just turned down $10,000 for an episode man he's like yeah I know and it feels good yeah, I suppose there's another question is like, yeah, are you driven by the business side of it now or still driven by your why? Definitely driven by the business side of it because I see an avenue for expansion and making it full time. And the the hardest thing about this has been, it's been part time, even now, it's, it's a part time hustle. Mm-hmm. So I do 40 hours a week at the New Zealand Herald. The podcast work is a side of it. So essentially I'm working two jobs. I see a path where the podcast becomes a business. We've got this um, business venture we're hoping to announce in the next couple of weeks, which I'm really excited about. And things are growing to a point where I'm hoping I can give more of my time to the podcast. So that thought of starting something with your best mate and turning it into a business and leaving your jobs and doing it for a living is incredibly exciting. Like when that day comes, if that day comes, like that will be a real moment. So yeah, you talk, we've got a team now, we've got a marketing guy, I've got an accountant, we've got a video producer. Um, I'm learning to sell myself. Like I'm going to be our sales rep, which has been done by NZME, but now I'm sort of taking ownership of it. Uh, Yeah, they've got business ideas. It's just these things slowly happen. And I was saying, shit, we're small business owners now, you know, we've, (laughs) <laughs> like this is happening like uh so so yeah i i am staying true to our why and yeah. being loyal to our listeners and what's matt got us here certainly but also expansion and business and turning this into something epic how lucky have you guys been luck i think and i've said it a few times lucky in the first instance of our, I don't speak on Shay's behalf, and he hates that, but my upbringing mm-hmm. of the foundation of where the platform I have had to turn me into the person I am. Um, but I also think, like, the hard work involved in it, I don't want to undervalue because while it has been fun and it's something that we've enjoyed doing, it's been a shitload of hours, and there's been lots of times where. We've driven to Auckland to talk to someone and not many people have listened and it's that every single week. It's like 150 episodes of intensive research. You know, so like you make your own luck to an extent. And it's that, kind of a trick question. Right. In a sense that you work fucking hard to get what you, to get to where you have. You know, you've, you've done a lot of uncomfortable things. I'd imagine just even asking people is very uncomfortable. But a lot of people go, oh, you're so lucky. Oh, you're so lucky to be where you are. 
mm. but they don't understand what's going on behind in the background, do they? Yeah. So yeah. You've, you've, you guys have worked fucking hard to get to where you are. Yeah, I would certainly say that you making your own luck and the opportunities that. Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say luck. I say we'd we've worked for it. Snowballed. Yeah, mm. for sure. Did you ever think in a million years that you and Shay would actually be able to like bring all of kind of New Zealand to one platform? Uh, we are able to get very vulnerable with all these like icons. The trailblazers, superstars, and stuff. Nah, not in the early days. Like early days when it was the first twenty episodes, it was just fun. And then I think Eric Murray you mentioned before might have been the first episode where I was like, "Shit, maybe this could expand." Because we'd yeah. gone away from football, and this was like a, a world-renowned athlete, and he told amazing stories. It's oh, like it's good, fuck, good at that. What we could not just do football, we could do other sports we could not do other sports we could do entertainment we could do anyone yeah. so I think that kind of planted the seed but where it has grown to yeah totally beyond um, any realistic expectations mm-hmm. we were at um, the Women's World Cup game at Waikato Stadium and I think at Waikato Stadium holds about 30,000 35,000 people and I remember me and Shay saying we have more than twice this many people, like all the people in the stadium, more than twice, maybe about three times this many people listen to our podcast every month. Like that's fucking nuts. Fucking crazy. Like eh? that's insane. <laughs> um, so where it has grown to is is cool. And we did an episode with the Top Twins yesterday. Yeah. And the Top Twins are Dame, the Dames, are legendary Kiwi icons. And I said in the episode, I was like, fuck, sorry, I'm just having a bit of a moment because it, was, it doesn't seem that long ago. I was talking to my dad in our shed in <laughs> Hamilton, and now we're talking to two sort of queens of yeah. New Zealand. So, yeah, every week we sort of pinch ourselves that this thing is, is epic. Do you still have the freedom to fail? Or do you feel a lot of pressure on that? Yeah. It, yeah, certainly. I'm, I'm, we're, we're definitely prepared to fail taking on the top twins was a risk mm-hmm. um, they've they both been going through some pretty severe health battles I wasn't sure how it was going to go like every week I love diversity I love different guests when top twins were sort of brought to us I was like yeah straight away but it was a risk because you know that's not our target demo mm. I wasn't sure how it was going to go it's a lot of effort and work we went into researching I read their book in preparation for it um, so yeah I definitely love yeah I'm, I'm not I'm not afraid of failure and and our ambassadors thing was kind of a, a risk which I wasn't really sure about so that is me and Shay just talking to each other taking people behind the scenes and up until we started that we kind of thought people were just here for our guests. Mm-hmm. You know, we're like, well, our, our thing is we just bring the best out of our guests. I don't think the audience cares what we have to say. And then we got a marketing guy's like, no, nah, people are here for you guys as well. Start your own show. Just take people behind the scenes. And it's been really popular. <laughs> I fucking love them, eh? Yeah. And so <laughs> that that was something I was prepared to fail at. I was like, oh, you know, if, if there's not much of a following on this, then um, that's fine. You know, yeah, we'll yeah. take a risk. And But it's been good. Um, I'm just going to try to wrap it up a bit then. 
Anything else you want to add on the podcasting aspect? Um, just keep going. Like to you, mm. you're at a point now, like this has been really enjoyable for me. Like you ask good questions. Um, you've put a lot of thought into it. Like not everyone has that. Uh, you've got a skill, you've got a way of um, connecting with people. You put, you sort of disarming and, and at ease. Like there's a skill here. Yeah, you learn eh, as you go to. You do, but that's exactly that's it. That's the hardest part when you just meet them. Like the guests that will come out before you, it's like first date vibes kind of thing. Like yeah. Like young, attractive lady. Like yeah. <laughs> trying to like peel back a few layers at the start. And like I've definitely gone through a roller coaster of ways I've started, ways I've finished the podcast. Like at the start, I used to finish with a stock standard questions and then I started doing a oh, Sue John Curran talks about like six pillars of well-being so at the start of a podcast I tried doing that as a quick fire to kind of peel back a few layers also get the listeners to listen, uh, understand who this person is and what they do there's a lot of trial and error and that's definitely I think one of the most challenging part is yeah, to disarm somebody either yeah, it is and it's experience like you say like you, I bet you are so much better at this now than your first oh. episode, your first ten episodes, yeah. and when you get to a hundred, you'll be better still. Yeah, yeah. But just keep going, just keep going, because you don't know what doors are going to open. And even if nothing comes from it, the conversations that you have are going to be so valuable to you. The connections you make. Mm-hmm. I sort of talk about, you know, you're at a different stage of life, but it's really hard to make friends after a certain age. But this is kind of like, I feel like we're friends. Yeah. Like the connection that we're going to have after this chat yeah. is totally different to even the coffee we had before this. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it's 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 a cheat code to get Fuck yeah. to know some really cool people. 100%. And I would agree with that because I've asked a lot of people as well because I moved over to Pat, like, you know, uh, to try and meet new people. It's like, how do you meet new people? It's like, fuck. Hmm. I tried yoga. I've started doing CrossFit in there and then only recently I've started interviewing people from CrossFit and they said no you're you you know them and then you break down the layers and you become good friends through the podcast as well and it just takes it to another level yeah but like as well I work with the same people day in day out I don't interact with other people so this is a great way for me to interact with other people as well yeah so so there's yeah there's lots of reasons to to continue but under underpinning that, you have to be enjoying it. Like it, it has to be something. You, otherwise, it's going to stop mm. eventually. If it, if it turns into a job, you've got to. That's kind of why I was asking about your why. Because for me, it's just a hobby. It's just enjoyable. I yep. don't give a shit about how many listeners. Like it's good fun. Yeah, it is. And same for me. It certainly doesn't feel like a job. Like you know, yesterday I had a day off from work, so we drove up to Auckland. And interviewed the top twins and drove home. That didn't feel like work. <laughs> like that felt like a really fucking yeah. cool thing to do. Yeah, yeah, Switch yeah. is a great place to be. Um, what is some advice for your eight-year-old self? Eight-year-old self? Yep. Or like not necessarily eight, but like in that area. My my boy is about to turn seven. Any advice for you Eldest boy, <laughs> he's not. He wouldn't listen to it. <laughs> uh, at that age, I just think being nice is the most important thing for kids. It really, um, when I see another kid being nice to someone else without a parent around, you know, doing some mm-hmm. sort of selfless gesture or trying to make someone feel comfortable. That fills me 
Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I would just say be be a good person, be be nice. I might have to change the age a bit older. Actually, that's good. But I was just thinking about it. Like eight is pretty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So don't watch so much TV. <laughs> Get off your. Screen. But I suppose eight is because I've got mm. eight and eighty. So the other side of the coin is: what do you want to hear from your eighty-year-old self? Yeah, I feel like I'm at this point. I'm thirty-eight, mm-hmm. um, and I feel like I will look back on this year as a, a turning moment. Like so much has happened with the podcast and the business is building. And I'm at the point where I'm ready to go all in on it. And I want to look back on this moment and be proud of the risk, I, the, the calculated risk I took and the work I put to build what I'm hoping is going to be something epic across the next 10, 20, 30 years. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really, I'm loving, I mean, four young kids and a business and a good group of friends. And, you know, I feel like life is in a really cool place. So I just want to be true to myself and, so what do you want your 80-year-old self to say? you done well, mate. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. Yeah, good choices. Like, having four kids is a fucking wild choice. Like, <laughs> that's, uh, a lot of people, anyone would think that's crazy. I remember when one of my friends announced they had four kids, and I thought, that's fucking crazy. But I, I'm really proud of it already. And looking down the track at 80-year-old yeah. self, I just want to say, mate, you made some good choices. Fucking made man. some good choices. What does the next chapter look like for you? Yeah, hopefully all in on the podcast. Um, business, friendship, um, good work-life balance is really important. I want to create enough time in my schedule that I'm not super busy and I can be present and be with the family because the early years with young kids is just so important. Like That's what it's all about. And, and you don't have them for long. There'll be a point where they don't want to hang out with you anymore. But I've heard that uh, when you're 18... It's like the child has spent like 80% of their life that they'll be around you with by the time they're 18 and by the time they're 20, it's like 95% of your life. Yeah. It's fucked up. Yeah. And it's so hard because there's so much going on that as you get older, you probably would have more time to hang with Mm. little kids. But with so much going on, it's really hard. You've got to work really hard to find that time. So creating that balance, having having something which I'm passionate about, which turns into a business, having work-life balance and having a really good relationship with my wife and kids. It's Very wholesome. Yeah, wholesome guy. Finish with a quote or words of wisdom for our listeners? Words of wisdom. Um, to have an easy life, do hard things. To have a hard life, do easy things. <laughs> so that... That's something that I have found across the last, I'd say, five years. I've been yeah. on a bit of a self-help journey. But the things which are really hard, which I have done, have made my life a lot easier. So some examples of that are um, cold showers. Mm-hmm. I do those every day. I've been doing that for three or four years now. Hard to start with. Really hard. <laughs> I stopped this winter. <laughs> yeah. So, so, But it energizes me. It's yeah. such a good start to the day. And... I, I love the challenge. I love conquering that challenge. It makes me feel really good. Um, fasting. So I I most of the time eat one meal a day. I have a four-hour eating window. I eat at five o'clock with the kids and I fast the rest of the day. I'll have like a black coffee to get me through. Mm-hmm. Hard, fucking hard to start with for the first month, six weeks. Now, it's like the biggest life hack I can 
say like my energy is good through the day i don't have to think about food i never have to worry like i don't get hungry um it regulates and maintains my weight it stood the test of time it's not a fad i've been doing it for three years as well like hard but now my life is easy swimming hated swimming just hated the thought of it it was really hard i got swimming lessons uh I couldn't swim two lengths without being out of breath and my technique was all yeah. over the show. Worked on it, worked on it, worked on it. Now swimming is something I love. It's my outlet. I had to swim before we came here. Mm-hmm. I swim three or four times a week and because I can't run anymore, I love it. So something that was really hard and now it's made my life easy. So, mm-hmm. I, And I find that public speaking as well. We're doing a lot of public speaking. Scared the shit out of me. Oh, now I'm starting to lean into yeah, it. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's just everything I've found, which is hard to start with, makes life easy. Um, mine this week, I think I may have said it before, um, yeah, I've got two, I'm just trying to remember where I got the second one from, but the first one is no risk, no story, so I see you guys as well, like, making risks, taking risks, I suppose, to do the things you love and enjoy, if you didn't take the risk, you'd have no story, Mm. um, the other one is success bows to those who work timelessly, not to those who wish carelessly like it um thank you so much for your precious time um just enough time to get home for you hopefully um it's been great nah it's Loved it. much appreciated uh you and Seamus hopefully get Seamus on board as well and ask him different questions podcast questions for him yeah I don't want to ask everything he's lived a he's lived a life too I'll say um thank mate this has been so good like I say um Keep at it because you've got a talent. And and the disarming part and the making people feel comfortable and being a normal human is underrated. Being normal. Eh? Being a normal is really, <laughs> like there's so many fucking wacky characters out there. But And it's easier for us because there's two of us and mm. we can kind of like use each other as shields to make people feel comfortable because we're so comfortable with each other. But one-on-one and especially interviewing, listening to what they're saying and being active and thinking about the next question is, is harder and it's mm. a skill. But it's been really enjoyable, man. No. Stick with it. Like much appreciated. Yeah. Cheers, everybody, for listening. Uh, stay tuned for more. And that's a wrap for the week, team. I hope you've enjoyed this as much as I did. To stay up to date with the podcast, click the follow button. But you can also find more on the Instagram account, Latable Chapters. Cheers.